This podcast is brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. This is Baseball Outside the Box with Peter Caliendo. Innovative thoughts from baseball's best coaching minds from around the world. Brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. Now your host, former USA Baseball National Team coach, Peter Caliendo. Hey, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're at, in the U.S. and around the world, welcome. Thanks for joining us. I'm Pete Caliendo, your host, Baseball Outside the Box. This is a show that loves to interview baseball's best coaching minds who love to challenge the status quo, and we've got some great guests, and we love our guests because they do a great job, bring us a lot of great information, and thank you, everybody. ESPN Honolulu, aloha. Thanks for hosting the show, and thank you, everybody in the U.S. and around the world for listening. We're over 100 countries and we appreciate everything you do for us. Anytime you need anything, you have somebody that you like us to interview, let us know and uh, just email me at caliendo19 at gmail.com. And we are live on Facebook. So if you have any questions on Facebook, please put them in the comments section. And don't forget, special thank you to SIS, our Japanese friends, the new, new sponsor, IT company, Solutions Integrated Services. If you're a business and you need a bunch of this stuff like installation on telephones, digital network systems, sales network equipment, equipment relocations, cabling, electrical work, client support and management. These guys are fantastic. Great baseball people too. The owner's a baseball coach, great friend of mine. Um, they do a fantastic job. They've got some big clients in the US. So do me a favor, if you're interested in any of their work, just email me, caliendo19 at gmail.com. We'll put you directly with the owner. All right, man, let's get started. We got a great show um, we continue to bring you some great guests. And let me tell you, talk about a baseball career. It is going to be a lot of fun. A good friend uh, on the show today, Tony Garofalo. Can you believe this? First of all, it's his 50th anniversary. So we're going to welcome Tony in a minute here. But 43 years, and he may correct me on this, but 43 years athletic trainer. Hey, major league trainer with the Chicago Cubs from 1977, 1986. You know, I'm in Chicago. So obviously I follow the Cubs a lot. Um, he's the founding partner of Professional Baseball Athletic Trainer Society, PBABs. We're going to talk to him about that. And I got it. You know, I met him the first time when I was with the Schomburg Flyers. And ever since, boy, um, it's been a lot of fun. Learned a lot from him. And he saved me. I had double, I had double hip replacement. He recommended the doctor. Well, we may even talk about that. Let's welcome our good friend, Tony Garofalo. What's up, Tony? Hey, Pete. How you doing? Doing good, man. Uh, I'm sure I missed something there. If I went over your career... In uh, as an athletic trainer, we'd be here till uh, midnight. Well, it's been uh, it's been a long career, you know. It uh, I I first started doing this stuff professionally when I was 20 years old, and wow. uh, yeah, and I was still a student in college at the time when I first did my first professional gig. And 52 years I've been doing this. It's a long time. Wow, 52 years. And here's here's we're gonna have some fun here because. I want to get into that because I also want, you know, I want, I want young people that are getting in the industry to understand that, you know, how to get in the industry, what they should be doing, maybe, you know, what you went through, you know, and what we'll talk about that. I think that's important. Then we'll get into some of the fun stuff too with baseball. Um, but let's do this for our audience real quick. Okay. You, you mentioned, uh, where, where did you grow up? I grew up in St. Louis. Saint a diehard, Louis. diehard Cardinal fan when I grew up. Oh boy. And then you had to go to the Cubs. That'd be interesting. Well, it was fun. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, what was good about it is when the transition from the Cardinals to the Cubs, a lot of guys 
who I was with in the minor leagues for the Cardinals, we all came up to the big leagues at the same time. You know, at the time, the Cardinals had a fabulous minor league system. And there was probably, of the guys I had in the minor leagues, I'd say probably 50 to 50 to 60 of those guys made it to the big leagues someplace, somewhere or another. So it was really, it was like kind of like home, old home, especially when I go to St. Louis, a lot of those guys who I was with in the minor leagues were coming up into the big leagues at the time. So it was fun. Yeah, talk about a rivalry. Wow. Um, well, we're going to, it's going to be fun talking about that too. Uh, how about what, uh, what did you want to be when you were a young kid? I always, I, you know, I always loved sports and I was a soccer player growing up in St. Louis and centuries ago when I started high school, it was uh, our high school in St. Louis, believe it or not, didn't have a soccer team, which is unusual because St. Louis was considered the hotbed of soccer in the United States. Mm -hmm. In fact, um, the 1950 World Cup team that that featured half of the team came from the hill in St. Louis, which you might know is an entire oh, yeah. Italian section in St. Louis. And a lot of those guys played on that 1950 team at that beat England, the first time England was upset in the, in the World Cup was because of this uh, team from partially from St. Louis and partly from the East Coast. So soccer was big in St. Louis when my soccer team did my high school didn't have a soccer team. So, you know, I, all my friends were playing different sports and I'm not a football guy. I'm not a basketball guy. I played some baseball, but my coach, my athletic director said, well, why don't you try this student athletic trainer course that's that's given? So he paid for me to do a student athletic trainer course, and I learned how to tape ankles and, you know, just the basics first aid. And I got hooked on it. And then when I graduated from high school, I was going to play college soccer. I went to a place in Atchison, Kansas, a place called St. Benedict's College. This is now Benedictine College. So I was playing on their summer soccer league team. And I broke three ribs playing soccer. And this was like a week before I was supposed to go to try out. And that kind of ended my soccer career. And I, they, they didn't have a certified, well, nobody had a certified athletic trainer at the time. They had, um, they had the coach was doing most of the stuff. So he, uh, he heard that I had been involved with this kind of stuff. So he hired me to be a student manager, athletic trainer. And I did it for four years in college. And uh, I was going to be a teacher. I was going to be a phys ed teacher. And when I graduated, I started writing all these letters to all the different professional teams. And the Cardinals are one of the teams that answered me. In fact, there was probably, uh, no, there was two teams that answered me. The Cardinals were one and the Kansas City Chiefs were the other one. And um, since being from St. Louis, I mean, that was a lifelong dream of mine. So I took the job with the Cardinals. Wow. Isn't that interesting how life takes, you know, a, a different turns because like you said, you know, you weren't even looking at being an athletic trainer. Um, and then all of a sudden somebody kind of introduces you into that area. You love it. Then all of a sudden you get, you know, hired by your home team, which is, yeah. a, you know, talk about an irony. Wow. Yeah. I, and, and I remember, you know, I'm, you know, I, I went to, I wanted to be a, a chemist, I think, and a doctor, you know, then I went to uh, Universal Illinois pre-law and then i ended up in baseball right why did i end up in baseball saw an ad in, in uh, baseball digest right went to mickey own baseball school yeah. boom right there was hooked and yeah. went on so we never know what life where life's going to take us yeah and it's and it was just it was a great experience where you know uh, 
I just enjoyed it so much. You know, you could be involved in athletics. I mean, yeah, you didn't get the accolades that, you know, the players did and that kind of stuff. But I always felt that if they did good and I helped them get on the field, then that was my reward. And, you know, it was a long battle in the minor leagues, and uh, but it was a great time. We had a well, lot of fun. Whether you're in college or the minor leagues, it's not just a battle, right? It's, it's long days. You're there early, leave late. I mean, and then, you know, you hear this word all the time, and I know young people don't want to hear it. You know, I, I like to hear your part of this. You know, in life in general, yes, you can get lucky and, you know, and get certain jobs, but you've got to sacrifice when you're young at times. I know people are saying, you know, well, I don't want to sacrifice. Well, you don't have to, but it does help to sacrifice a little bit because that gets you places. Right, right. I mean, when I was in the, when I was in college, you know, back then we weren't getting paid much for a student, student worker. So what I would do since I was a student manager, I had access to washing all the uniforms and everything. So I would, guys would pay me to do their laundry because I was down there anyway, taking care of the uniforms in any way. And they say, Hey, here's, here's five bucks. Can you do my laundry for me? I said, yeah, I could do that. You know, and when you're making 15 bucks a week, you know, that really, that, <laughs> five that's bucks a, is pretty good. That's a lot of beer money, you know, yeah. coming in, you know, especially back then. So you did that. And then when you're in the minor leagues, you know, you really have to put in your time, you know, it, it wasn't, I come to find out very quickly that it's not a nine to five job. You work till the job is done. And when I started with the Cardinals in Sarasota, I had two teams. I had a team wow. that played in the morning and I had a team that played in the evening. Plus I was the only athletic trainer in the Gulf coast league at the time. I think there was three of us and I was one of three and we were at the white Sox complex in Sarasota. I had four teams in the, in the clubhouse there. So I basically took care of four teams wow. when I was there. The only kind of break I got was when the two Cardinal team played each other, you know? Yep. So it was long days, you know, I, There'd be times where I'd get to the ballpark early in the morning. <laughs> I get to the, I get to the ballpark. We had a uh, unaired conditioned clubhouse down in Sarasota in the summertime. Ooh! So my equipment was a seventy-five pound bag of ice that was delivered at seven o'clock in the morning, and that was it all day. So by the time the afternoon came, I had a, wow. a just a puddle of water there. Water. So you had to use your, your brain a little bit and had to think about how am I going to do this? Because they didn't spend a lot of money in the minor leagues, you know, with equipment and especially for athletic trainers, but you know, you have to learn on the fly. And it was really a great experience for me. You know, I, you know, now I see the stuff that they have in the minor leagues and it was better than what I had in the big leagues, you oh, know? Yeah. So it's the, the profession has really evolved in baseball and it's, it was really a, it was a hard time but it was a great learning experience for me. And I had a great mentor, Bob Bowman. You know, I had three great mentors, you know, when I was in the minor league baseball, Bob Bowman, who was with the Cardinals for 50 years, he was with the St. Louis Browns and the St. Louis Cardinals, Gus Mock, who was the athletic trainer for the New York Yankees back in their heydays in the forties and fifties, then went oh. to the Mets in the sixties with Casey and Al Schooneman, who was with the Cubs for, for 20 years. So when I was in the minor leagues, I worked with Bowman in the off season at St. Louis University. And it was like going to school every day with, you know, and then, and then uh, Gus Mock, he was living in St. Pete at the time. And I was working extended spring training and we were at the Mets complex. So Gus, the Mets had hired 
Gus to work in the mornings uh, with the Mets young players. So I got to work with somebody like that, you know, so that was just unbelievable. Listen to those two guys, you know, he, he got guys that worked on guys like Stan Musial and, and Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris and Yogi Berra and Whitey Ford and all these great players. And now they're my mentors, you know, so it was really a great experience. Yeah, that's awesome. You know what? And I was thinking as you're talking too about that, you know, during your time, you mentioned, you know, they're long hours. It's tough. Um, were there times where you just said, man, this is not what I want to do anymore. What kept you going? Because, you know, a lot of times, you know, you're in the minors four or five years, you know, just like a player, right? After a while, you yeah. think, well, where am I going with this? You know, it's going to be full time. You know, am I going to make enough money? I got to get married. Maybe I'm getting married. There's a lot of sacrifices there. What kept you going all, you know, the whole time? I just really loved the profession. You know, I just, I didn't have expectations of, you know, I was going to, I set a time limit for myself. Like if I was in a minor leagues, 10 years, I was going to go out and get a job because I was married already. And my son, Jim, when we were in Little Rock, Arkansas, he was a baby. So my wife and I would go to the clubhouse in Little wow. Rock. Our Jim would ride on a tractor with the groundskeeper while he was cutting the grass. And Jan and I would be doing the laundry and cleaning the clubhouse in the morning. And then she would take him home, you know, give him a nap and everything. I'd stay at the ballpark and then she'd come back for the game that night, you know. And that was our life, you know, it was, it was, it was really tough, but I, I really loved it. And, and I was really lucky because I advanced pretty quick. I went from um, rookie ball for two years and I went to double A. I went from rookie ball to double A and I spent three years in double A. And then Bob Kennedy was my mm -hmm. boss. He was the farm director for the Cardinals. And in 1976, he was, he was um, advanced scout for would be the Seattle Mariners. So Bob came into Little Rock and uh, I said, if anything opens up in this new organization, keep me in mind, because at the time, Gene Guselman was entrenched with the Cardinals and Gene was only like three years older than I am. So I didn't figure there's no way nobody had assistant trainers at the time. Hmm. So I figured my I was going to be stuck in the minor leagues for years. So I said, if anything comes up, keep me in mind. Well, then after the season was over. I was working at St. Louis University and I was driving to work one day and I heard that Bob Kennedy was named general manager of the Cubs. So I called him to wish him and tell him congratulations because Bob and I were pretty good friends. And he said, uh, yeah, I was just getting ready to call you. He said, how'd you like come working for me? Come work for me. And I said, yeah, where do you want me to go? Triple A, double A, where do you want? He goes, no, I want you to come to Chicago. And I was 26 years old. Wow. Because Gary Nicholson, who was here, prior to, to me being here, he was from Seattle, the Seattle area, and he wanted to be closer to home. So he was hired as the athletic trainer for the Seattle Mariners. So that opened up the big league job. So I just jumped from double A to the big leagues. Well, listen, you know, relationships are important. And I can tell you kept relationships with people. I think that that helps. But what, why do you think you made it so quick? I think because Bob realized, you know, that I wasn't afraid to work. And I, and, you know, because, you know, in spring training, you put in long hours in the minor leagues, you know, you're a lot of bus rides, as you know, and we spend a lot of time, you know, working and you, 
the players go to the hotel and the athletic trainers, the equipment man as well. So he goes to the ballpark and he knew that I wasn't afraid to work. So I think that helped. Plus my mentor, Bob Bowman, when he spoke, people listened. Uh, and Bowman must've told Kennedy, hire him, you know, cause, cause Kennedy, Bob would always talk to people, you know, he, he was a great baseball man, but he knew he didn't, he, he was smart enough to know that he didn't know everything. So if he needed help on something, he would go to people and he would rely on Bowman for the injury stuff, you know, because he's, because the guy's been, was there forever, you know? So he must've said something to Bowman and um, that, that got me the job. You know, it's interesting, you know, you hear a lot about, you know, uh, people saying, Hey, when you're young, get yourself a mentor. It's so important. You know, I think mentors are important. And the other part you mentioned was you're working with these guys when you were younger and you're actually on the field in the dugout everywhere. I mean, you look on hands, you know, you can read all the books you want. I think that's important. You can watch all the videos, but you know, when you're, when you're get learning from the best one-on-one, there's nothing better than that. Is there? Yeah. Oh no, there's not. I remember when, when I was working with Bowman in St. Louis, I mean, at St. Louis university, when you're working with him in the off season, it's like a who's who of, of sports comes in to see him. Yeah. I mean, we're in the athletic training room and Roy Seaver shows up one day. Roy Seaver was played for the St. Louis Browns for years. He was a native St. Louis and Ed McCauley, who was a great NBA and collegiate basketball player show up. Stan Musial showed up. All these players would show up and Bowman would introduce me to them and then they would ask him for help and he would treat them. He would treat their kids. He would treat their grandkids. So it was a, a consistent learning day, everyday learning experience. And we would talk back and forth. And one thing I learned from him, which I try to do even to this day, is he would give me like an injury and he'd say, how would you handle this? And I would give him my synopsis being a young, crazy, 20 something year old. And he would look at me and he go, I never looked at it that way, but why don't you take that and add this to it? And we'll get to that goal a little bit quicker. So now when I talk to young athletic trainers, I never tell anybody, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there were times where he could look at me and say, what are you thinking? But he never did that. He said, he said, that's an interesting way of looking at things. And then he'd add his two cents. So that's what I, I try to do today is that that's an encouragement to people instead of, you know, I mean, if you really want to destroy a young person, all you have to do is just say like, what are you talking about? You know, that's going to mm -hmm. totally destroy somebody, but he would never do that with me. And that really helped me. And it stuck with me, you know? Yeah. Those are your, those are your great teachers. That's why mentors are so important. I, I really believe that. And, yeah. um, and, 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 you know, if you're lucky to have a good one, like you said, you know, and you've had several um, that could lead you to success. What, what, what would you say is the toughest thing in being an athletic trainer? Well, I was always accused of straddling the fence. You know, you gotta, you gotta be, you gotta get the player's confidence so you can't go running, you can't, they can, they tell you stuff. And a lot of times they don't want the management to find out about stuff. Mm. So you got to gain their confidence, but yet you got to remember who's paying your salary. So that's the toughest spot, you know, and I was never put in that position 
to, you know, betray a player. And I think the players could trust in me. And I think that's why to this day, a lot of the, a lot of my former players are still good friends of mine. Yeah. You almost have to be, you're almost like a, in some ways, a father figure, a psychologist, psychiatrist. Oh, you're everything. Right. I mean, I mean a, a uh, marriage counselor, you're yeah. everything, you know? <laughs> So you better you better have some uh, psychiatry or psych you know background because you know the game is so mental. Like you said, the, the other part they have to trust you. I mean, if they don't trust you, they're not going to open up to you, and then you know you're not going to be able to help them when it comes to an injury or, or prevention and all that. Yeah, and that's and that's where you and that's where that's where the, you asked me before about you know what what you want to why did I want to do this you know and then years go by and then when bruce Suter's inducted into the baseball hall of fame mm. he thanked me in his hall of fame speech wow when when uh um when we won in 84 ron say had the first bottle of champagne and dumped it over my head and said thanks for everything you did for us this year you know um i saw bill buckner right before he passed away in in arizona and he came up to me and he apologized because he was really suffering bad from Parkinson's at the time. Mm -hmm. And he, he, he gave me a big hug and he said, I never did thank you for everything you did for me, you know? And that's when it all, all this stuff, all these hours and everything you put in really paid off. Yeah. You know, and uh, if it wasn't for the medical people there and, you know, the athletic trainers, the doctors, um, you know, what 162 games, you're bound to, have issues. Um, but a lot of it, Tony has to do with how you prepare prior to the season. How does that work from your, from your job standpoint? Well, the game has changed so much, you know, and now these guys can afford to, you know, condition all year. Mm -hmm. Hire their own people, right? They hire their own uh, strength coaches. You know, they're, they don't have to work. A lot of times when I first started out, these guys were getting jobs in the off season. So they would take their time in spring training to get into shape. And they were such good athletes that it wouldn't take them long. They would never lose that, that skill that made them a professional baseball player. They just had to take the time to get in shape a little bit. So that's why the game has really changed a lot. So this preparation before the season really helped, you know, that's why they, they were really strict on putting, even back then, uh, restrictions on pitchers and amounts of innings they played in preseason, you know, mm -hmm. excuse me, that because they were trying to get themselves in shape and they knew that baseball is a marathon. It's not a sprint. So you want to be, you want to be stronger when it gets to game 158, 59, you don't want to be at your peak when you're at game four, you know, in April. So that's why the conditioning is such a great part of it. But things yeah. happen during the course of the year. Your body breaks down. You know, baseball sure. is unique that you play every day. And even when you don't have a game scheduled, you're still doing something. You're either taking extra batting practice, you're, you're, you're doing something constantly, or you're on an airplane traveling to the next city. So you're always doing something. So from basically from February 1st till October 15th, you're going every single day. You know? Yeah, it's it's not like some sports where they get a break for five, six days or a couple days and then right. they're, they're playing again. They get to recover. And, and and I think this is an interesting area. And I know you have a passion for pitching and, and we're going to talk about the pitching aspect. 
but you know the recovery aspect and in, in, in the days you were athletic trainer what were they doing to try to recover faster whether it be a pitcher or a player you know to feel better because like you said it, it, the body takes a beat you know a beating compared to now well i mean back then you know you just had to do your best you know you had to make sure that you got your rest at night which not always happened but right. you know, you know, you try to do your best. You know, they sometimes they would not have, they would not take batting practice. You know, they needed a a couple extra hours to come to the ballpark a little bit later to match or let them come back later. I mean, when Joe, when I was there, Jody Davis was our number one catcher. He would start and he'd come to spring training and he would weigh like two thirty five. By the end of the season, he was down to like one seventy. Wow! Because playing every single day and we had all sure. day games you know, and he took a beating. I mean, he had come in, it was black and blue. In fact, one time he kept getting hit with foul tips on his right shoulder on the left shoulder where his glove was, they had that extra piece, mm -hmm. you know? So him and I, you know, he come in and his right shoulder was just like purple. It was so beat up from foul tips. So he said, we got to figure out something we can do. So him and I devised this little thing that we, took a piece of a it used to be a catcher's glove we cut this catcher's glove up and there was a piece of plastic in the back part of the glove that we had yosh our equipment man get it sewn onto his right shoulder so when he would throw it wouldn't and it would flip up and hinder his throw and we tried to get this thing patented you know because wilson was our supplier at the time and they said it'll never work it'll never work and it they wouldn't worked. do it well now you look at catcher's equipment today it what works they got uh, one here. They got one there. You know, it's crazy. Man. So, and I know you're you're close to retirement, but you would have, you would have been retired earlier. If that pack well, came through. Yeah, I know. I mean, uh, and and that comes, you know, well, you you know, all those catchers used to wear those things hanging down. Yep. That came from the athletic trainer of the Dodgers, Bill Bueller, because I think it was Steve Yeager got mm -hmm. hit with a foul ball one time. I remember that. And. He, he needed something he wanted to play. He had to need something to protect it. So he got a piece of plastic and molded it to protect his. So when he put his, it wouldn't uh, prevent him looking down. It was like on a piece of rawhide. So when he would look down, his throat would be protected and it couldn't come up and hit him. Well, now that went, everybody had him for a while. Now they make the mask bigger and a lot of them wear these entire cages now. Yeah, like but the hockey mask. You know, that was, you know, necessity. Yeah, made out of necessity. Hey Tony, did they did they did they take uh, like uh, in those days cold cold baths, uh, running, biking, what kind of stuff again, recovery wise, other things like that? <sighs> no, they did really they really didn't do that kind of stuff. I think the biggest thing they did for recovery was just rest. Yeah, you know, because a lot of this stuff came on later on. You know, all these new innovations came on later on in my career. Um, I think the biggest thing they did was, you know, they just tried to get as much rest as possible. The pitches were pretty, were pretty good because they were on a pretty strict regimen where they had five, four days off in between starts, you know, and the relievers, you know, if you brought in like a Bruce Suter, he'd come in and with one out in the seventh inning and pitch the seventh, eighth, ninth. Yep. You know, I remember now, those days. Now pitchers in the fifth inning start looking over the shoulder. Where's the bullpen, you know? <laughs> You know, so, well, that and that's interesting because I want to get your opinion on this. I know we're not going to uh, settle it here today um, because it's it's a big, big 
undertaking. We don't have all the answers, but back then it just seemed like you didn't have the injuries we have nowadays. Now I get it. Guys are throwing harder. You know, they're stronger. They're, they're also in better shape too, because like you said, they hire their own personal trainers. They're prepared coming in the spring training to actually play games. They're not getting ready in spring training. What's your thoughts about the injuries? You know, not many injuries in the old days. Now you're seeing a whole lot more. I think the biggest problem is, well, first of all, they're bigger and they're stronger. Mm -hmm. Okay. The second biggest problem, especially with young kids coming up, they don't take any time off. They want to go all year round. You know, they want to go to this pitching coach. They want to go to this place. They want to go to this tryout. They want to go to this showcase and they never take a time off, take, take time off. You basically need four months off in baseball. Now that doesn't mean sit at home and play video games, Right. you know, be, do other sports, play soccer, play basketball. I mean, you look at the great athletes in the past, Fergie played basketball. He played hockey in the off season. And when it came to spring training, he just tried to get, he just, he just honed his baseball skills. Ryan Sandberg was going to play collegiate football, you know, and he went to a tryout and ended up becoming the best second baseman ever to play baseball. All these guys did other sports in the off season, you know, now it's just like they're one sport, you know, I got to do, I got to do this every single day because I want to be in the big leagues by this age. And you're starting, we're starting to find out that a lot of collegiate programs and a lot of professional teams won't sign single sport athletes anymore mm -hmm. because they know that is an accident waiting to happen. And you got to try to convince kids you can, you can do things sports related without doing the sport, you know, like for example, I, I was dealing with a kid that had, a, it was a middle infield that had a shoulder problem. Well, he insisted on doing something. I said, fine, have somebody hit your ground balls and drop the ball in the bucket. You can still perfect your, your fielding skills and your footwork and everything and fielding ground balls, but you don't have to throw the ball. Just feel the ball, drop it in a bucket. When the bucket's filled, you bring it back to the coach, he'll hit your ground balls. You can do that for hours on end. You're still doing a sports-specific drill without injuring yourself. And you can't convince kids and parents that's what they need to do. Now, I, I'm a firm believer. We might be getting off the subject a little no, bit. No, no, no. It's a, okay. This is good. I'm a firm believer that the worst thing that ever happened to baseball were showcases. Mm. And the reason I say that is because a kid's playing baseball. He's a pitcher, okay? Now he gets notification. There's going to be 25 professional scouts. There's going to be 15 Division I collegiate scouts at this showcase, now, this kid hasn't touched a baseball, you know, in three weeks. And he sees a radar gun, and he's going to show those coaches that he can throw 85 miles an hour. You can't do that, you know? And then they break down. And then they may not break down right at that time, but later on, that's going to come back to haunt them. So, you know, that's why I, I really think I'm not a big fan of showcases. You know, and, and I get it from the standpoint, if they were going to do showcases, I think they should be organized in a way because, you know, you have Major League Baseball, you have collegiate baseball, right? They, right. That's, that's where that's where they want to be showcased by. Right. But yet we got Eastern and Northern League players that are going to Florida in the winter and 
guess why? Because those people are going to be there. Well, if those people weren't there, we wouldn't, the players wouldn't be going during that time. Maybe there's a specific time where these showcases should be held. I mean, that's, I mean, what's your make opinion? Them, make them not so much as soon as the season ends, maybe have a showcase. Mm-hmm. Don't do it like in the middle of winter, you know, when some of these guys have a playing. And when people tell me, well, people go to Puerto Rico and play in the wintertime or they go to Florida and play in, a, you know, the fall league. But they but stay in shape. But they're in shape. Plus, they're only there for a couple, like maybe a month at the most. Yeah. You know, like we used to have players going to, I mean, I was asked to go to Puerto Rico in the offseason one time for, um, I, I, they wanted me to go to um, Santurce in Puerto Rico. And I couldn't do it because I had to make more money than I was making in the minor leagues. But the players would only be there for like, especially the prospects, they would only be there maybe three weeks, a month at the most. And then they go home and they just say, take it easy for a while. You know, so they don't play all winter until spring training starts. But there's a big difference also, Tony, between a 24 year old that's going down or a 28 year old and, you know, going in winter league and a 16-year-old or a 14- and 15-year-old. Those bodies are two different complete bodies. That's right. That's right. Funny story, and it's scary how people think. One of our physical therapists that I work with called me because I was really into pitching mechanics and doing, I remember. Throwing, throwing analysis and all this kind of stuff. He said, I want you to come talk to this kid and father. And I said, why? He said, that's all I'm going to tell you. Come and talk to him. And this kid was 14 years old had a bad elbow. So I go in and, and introduce myself. And the, and the first thing out of the father's mouth is, who would you recommend for Tommy John surgery in the area? I knew that was and coming. I said, well, I know a lot of good physicians that can do that. Does your son have a problem? He said, no, we want to get it taken care of before he does. So that way he can make it to the big leagues quicker. Unbelievable. And I just looked at this guy. I said, well, number one, if I knew a doctor would do an unnecessary surgery, I wouldn't recommend him. And number two, do you realize if he did have this problem and he had surgery, you're taking out 18 months of his career? He said, yeah, but you don't understand. He's going to pitch in the big leagues before he's 21. And I said, I don't think that's going to happen. He goes, well, what do you know? And I said, well, I guess I don't know anything, you know? So that's how I wonder, where, I wonder where that player is nowadays. That'd be interesting to find out, wouldn't it? Uh, he's probably on a garbage truck someplace, <laughs> which is not a bad gig to be truthful. Yeah. They're going to make big bucks on those garbage trucks. Absolutely. But you know, it's interesting because, you know, the other aspect of this, uh, you know, is it, is it the throwing or is it the pitching all year round is the problem? Mm-hmm. It's the throwing. It's the throwing. You know, you, you don't know if you punch the wall, if you punch a wall constantly, is it that first time you break your hand? Is it the 10th time or is it the 250th time? You don't know which one it is. So if you throw all year, you don't know if it's like the first month you do it or three weeks later, or was it four months ago when you when you start damaging it? So it's the constant throwing. The arm was not made to throw a baseball. Hmm. That's why you have to, in the offseason, build up a plateau to get those strong. 
So it'll help prevent some of these minor things becoming major things later on. So let me ask you, you got young kids, you know, they're, they're, kids start throwing, you know, at six years old, throwing rocks, whatever, you know, and then all of a sudden they start to play catch. Um, what are the critical areas when you start working with young kids? Um, yes, that take that time off three, four months. Okay. And do something else. I think that's extremely important, but what about as far as a young coach working with kids, what, what should they be trying to do to prevent? Because the injuries, like you said, have to start when you're young. They don't start when you're 20. Right. Right. There are three basic, I believe there's, there's three basic things that cause major arm problems with young throwers. It's the number of pitches you throw, the pitch types you throw, and mechanics. So if you have poor mechanics, you're going to put excess stress on certain areas of your body, which is going to cause your shoulder to break down. If you do a lot of throwing, it's going to cause fatigue. Then you're going to end up breaking down and causing problems and the types of pitch you throw your body may not be ready to throw those type of pitches. I tell young kids when you're young fastball change up because if you're throwing, if you're 12 years old and you're throwing say 70 mile an hour fastball. Okay. And you come back with a 60 mile an hour or 55 mile an hour change up that's going to work better than any breaking pitch because sure. it looks like a fastball, but it just comes in slower. So if you can perfect and control a changeup at a young age down the road, you're going to be better off. And then as you get older and stronger, you can put in a curveball and then stay away from all the trick pitches like knuckle curve, knuckles, you know, uh, knuckle ball, split finger, fastball slider, stay away till you're older. And then when you're, 18, then you can start throwing a slider, you know, 17, 18, because you're almost mature enough that you can handle those things. Throw your slider then, 17, 18. Those trick pitches prolong careers. They don't start careers. Anybody you looked at in the big leagues who has a trick pitch, they got that pitch to prolong their career. Like a knuckleball. Knuckleball. Bruce Suter split finger fastball. Oh, yeah. A great pitch. You know? Uh, Ryan Dempster went to split finger fastball after a while because he could see the writing on the wall that his career was in the, was towards the end of, was in the twilight of his career. So he came up with a new pitch and lasted. Dennis Eckersley went from being a starter to end up being a, a, one of the greater relievers in baseball, you know, because they could see, you know, now they went to the end of their, they, they did something to prolong their career. So you stay away from the trick pitches. So that's why I'm a firm believer. I, I dealt with this one kid. This doctor called me one time, a friend of mine, Peter Tonino. Who I remember at, Peter. Yeah, you introduced at, me to him. Yeah, he's down at uh, Loyola. And mm -hmm. I knew Pete, I knew known Peter since he was a resident, a senior resident. He called me. He said, I got this kid, left-handed pitcher. He's six foot three, and he can throw the hell out of the ball. But I've done every test imaginable and I can't find anything wrong with him. Can you walk, work with him and talk to him? So I said, okay. So I met with him and the father and he said, I said, okay, tell me a little bit about your career. And he was telling me all about his career. I think he went to St. Charles or Geneva or one of these schools down there. 
But anyway, he said, I throw typical pitcher, 95 mile an hour fastball. You know, I can throw 95 mile an hour fastball. I got a great curveball. My slider is awesome. He said, but my great out pitch is a split finger fastball. I said, okay. So this kid's a junior in high school. So I said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to follow this routine to figure out, you know, to get you strong. And then I'm going to come watch you throw in four weeks. He said, okay. So he followed the routine. So I met him at some place in St. Charles and I said, okay, let me see your fastball. Good fastball, a lot of pop on it. His mechanics were good because I helped straighten out his mechanics a little bit. Good curveball, good slider. Throws a split finger fastball and he grabs his elbow. Mm. And I said, that's your problem. He said, but my coach said it's a great out pitch. I said, but it's killing your elbow. Don't throw it. So is that for all pitchers that you get all pitchers should be careful with that pitch or is it specifically something for him that, that the split finger was hurting his elbow? It was hurting him, but I, I just think that kids should stay away from it. What about I a mean, slider? 18. You talked to a lot of major league pitchers. They say they didn't throw a, a, their slider until they were older, like 17, 18 years of age, you know? So, and there was a lot of talk about young kids throwing curveballs. When you're little, you, you don't have the strength to really snap off a good curveball, you know? So it ends up just spinning a little bit, you know? And look how, and look how tough it is for, to even throw for a strike when you're older, let alone, you know, a 10, 11 year old. Right. And you can't, you're not strong enough to really get the, the break or the snap of your wrist that you have to do that. So, and actually, if you look at the mechanics of a base, of throwing a baseball, Throwing a fastball puts more strain on a, on an elbow than throwing a curveball. Why? Why? Because if you, if you look at it, the the motion for a curveball is like this. Okay. So it's now, coming down. Coming down. For our audio people, yeah. Yeah. So if you just think about it now, when you open a door, how do you open a door? Like this. Mm -hmm. When you eat, how do you eat? like this everything is you turn your wrist this way when you throw a curveball it's down motion when you throw a fastball you're like this so it pronates and turned out out yeah because that's 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 where your mechanics go when you when you get on top of a fastball you come down and you pull it through it's caused your middle finger to stick up and your your index finger to almost be pointing down a little bit so that's your mechanics of throwing a fastball so that's putting more strain on your elbow than it is when you try to throw when you try to spin it and young kids aren't strong enough to do it i'm not advocating they throw a lot of curveballs but if you throw it's just throwing 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 you know and that brings up a good point so throwing you know you mentioned so we got to take a little rest but at the same time for young kids is there something they should be doing whether after they pitch after they play a game to get stronger, recover. Um, so that way they have a better chance of reducing an injury in the future. I'm a firm believer that warm up. When a, when a coach tells kids warm up, the last thing they should do is grab a baseball. Hmm. That's the last, 
or coach says, get loose. The last thing you should do is touch a baseball. I use the, especially around here in, in Northern Illinois, you're playing baseball in March and April. Yep. Which is another sore part of mine. Yeah. You're playing baseball in March and April. It's like keeping a, a rubber band in a freezer. Okay. So you're bundled up coming out there. The coach says, okay, get loose. Well, you pick up a baseball and start throwing. That's like taking that rubber band out of the freezer and pulling it. As soon as you get it out of the freezer, what's going to happen? Hmm. It's not going to be that elastic and something's going to break. Same way with your muscles and tendons. So what I advise is when a coach says, get loose, run back and forth from left field line to center field about four or five times, get some TheraBand and start working on some exercises to get the, get the muscles going, get the blood flowing through the muscles and tendons. Then after you do that five minutes, five, 10 minutes, then you pick up your baseball. And, and then after, and afterwards you could do the same stuff. Afterwards, you after know, your pitch or after you, you know, you know, what? It's, it's an individual. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a firm believer in icing down shoulders and stuff. Fergie never iced his shoulder down. What Fergie would do is he would stand in the shower, put his hand on the, on the shower head and get a bottle of alcohol and just milk his arm down to get the blood flowing again. That was, then you, you know, what? Won, at, how many games did he win in the big leagues? 200 and something games. It's incredible. You brought that up because I've done several shows um, on icing with some top experts who, who basically def defunct the person who invented icing wrote, wrote a book with another individual saying that, you know what, I kind of made a mistake. I thought it worked at the time, but now they're finding it doesn't. It's interesting. You say that. Yeah. I mean, if you have an injury, that's yeah, different, that's different, but there's no reason to ice your shoulder down for no reason. Or yeah. your, or your elbow, you know, just, just, you know, just get a light massage or something. Just, you know, rub, get the blood flowing back because it's going to build up lactic acid after, after doing a lot of throwing. So you got to get that lactic acid out of your muscles and that's going to help your recovery time, you know? And that's what Fergie would do when he would put his hand up on the shower head and just kind of milk his arm down. Wow. That's awesome, man. I'm glad you brought that up. You know, and the other part of all this, and I know you have a passion for this and I get it. Um, I'm going to preface it with, I know why we've got pitch counts and, you know, I know that co coaches are get excited, you know, and they're, they want to win. So pitch counts, I know in the, in the country had to come in at the high school level. And I know you were involved in, in part of that process, but it's so important. If you're going to have pitch counts to control things, you got to have them at the younger ages, don't you? That's when they're most important. <laughs> That's when they're most important. I fought with the Illinois high school association <laughs> i remember sports medicine committee for years and the problem was the coaches says we don't need that we know what we're doing well if you got a, a stud pitcher and you're going for the state championship you're going to use that kid as much as possible because you want to win the state championship or if you got a great travel program you're going to want to use that kid to win as many games as you can, which may help you win it. But down the line, there was a kid that grew up in Schaumburg. He's a year older than, or a year younger than my oldest son. His name was Eric Stocky. He was a great left-handed pitcher for Schaumburg High School. 
And his freshman year, he was all state. But sometimes he was pitching both ends of a doubleheader. Wow. And when he graduated, I mean, he this kid was a good possible to be a high draft pick or at least a recruit for a division one school left-handed pitcher. And by the time he was a senior, he was done. And now this is 25 years ago. Now the coach didn't mean to hurt him, but it just happened that he was a stud and, you know, he's going to do it. There was another guy that pitched for Schomburg, TJ. No. His name, pitched for Schomburg High School. No. He ended up being, TJ, no. He was drafted by the Dodgers. Mm-hmm. He pitched two years in the minor leagues, had Tommy John surgery on his elbow because, and he even told me when I was doing his rehab, he said, I got ruined in high school because I was, I was doing too much throwing. You and know? by the way, on the Tommy John, you hear a lot of success stories, but they're not all successful, are they? That's correct. Tommy John, the original, they didn't know if that was going to be a success. He missed two years of his career because of it, because they, it was like, the unknown, they didn't know what was happening. But going back to the pitch counts, you know, it was so important that I felt that they needed to do pitch counts. And they kept saying, well, no, we know what we're doing. And we can't trust the other coach to do it. Okay. I had, I had, I had, I knew all these questions were coming. My solution was, okay, you have two umpires at a game. Okay. So they say Pete Caliendo is pitching today. So he's got a little piece of paper, the base umpire, that is. He's got a little piece of paper, he writes out, Caliendo. At the end of the, he's got a clicker, you mm-hmm. know? You can, you can click and still see what's going on in the game. He looks down at his hand. Okay, in five innings, Pete Caliendo threw 95 pitches, okay? So now he goes to the IHSA website, and because that's how the umpires find out where they're going to be. So he knows, okay, Pete Caliendo, Hoffman Estates High School, writes it down, puts it on there. Pete Caliendo, Hoffman Estates High School on June 21st, he threw 95 pitches in five innings. So now the umpire that's going to work Hoffman Estates next game looks and says, okay, coach, I saw Pete Caliendo threw 95 pitches two days ago. He's ineligible to pitch. Boom. Case solved right there. Right. Oh, no, we can't do that. That won't work. It works for everything else, especially in the computer age. Why won't it work for pitchers? They do it with wrestling. And it's working now. And it's working now, but back then it wouldn't work. So, you know, you got to do something. If if we want to protect our pitches, and I got to admit, they're doing a better job of doing pitch counts. And it can be done, but you just got to convince the coaches. The other aspect of pitch counts, Tony, also is, and I think, and I'm looking at before high school, especially because I think a lot of injuries occur when they're young, as you're saying, you know, is in the big leagues, you don't see many pitchers pitch, relief pitchers pitch three games in a row, you know, but yet, yet we're asking kids in tournaments to do that. Talk about how detrimental that is to an arm. Yeah. Well, the problem, the problem with that is I always tell parents, that's your child. You should tell the coach he's not pitching today. Simple. I mean, that's your child. I mean, in some cases, it's almost child abuse the way they work these poor kids throwing. They go to Cooperstown and they play five games in a weekend in Cooperstown, you know, 
well, these same, they only have X amount of pitchers. And some of these kids are going to be pitching every day. And you can't do that. That's why it's up to the parents to say, no, little Pete's pitched too much. He's not going to pitch this weekend. Well, the coach might say, well, we don't want him on my team. Well, fine. I'll find a coach that will, you know, listen to me. So the parents got to be involved. It's their child. They got to, and coaches got to be smart about this, you know. Number one, why go to a tournament when you're going to be playing five games in a weekend? We're asking 11, 12, 9, 10, 11, 12 kids to do things that grown men don't do. Exactly. And, and, we're, and we're making them do this. So the parents got to be involved. The coaches got to be a little bit smarter, you know. And it's, it's, it's a simple solution, you know. And why schedule a tournament where you play five games in a weekend? Because it might be fun for the parents to go to Cooperstown for five days, but baseball doesn't become, it becomes a job for little kids. I was working at Palatine High School when I first got out of baseball and Palatine Travelers were a big travel program. I, I remember that. Still existence. We had kids before their freshman year in high school, 12, 13 year olds, playing 270 games in the summer. That's crazy. They get to high school. Baseball is not fun anymore. Sports are supposed to be fun for kids. And it's getting to be more a job because parents look at it as, well, if little Pete is good, he might get a scholarship to play college or he might play pro baseball. And then he can make, you know, $20 million a week, you know, or you know, coach is saying, well, if we win these tournaments, then we're going to get more people into our travel program and it's going to make our travel program more important. Okay. So that travel coaches want to do it and the ways, and, and I don't know if they still do this, but a lot of travel programs say, well, if you come play for our travel program, we're going to have these scouts at the games and they're going to get your kid big exposure. There's not enough scouts around to go to all these travel programs to do this kind of stuff but it's a way to bring people in because mom and dad are going to be shelling out big bucks to play travel program. It's going to help that travel program grow, you know? Yeah. And I think the coaches also need to look at major league baseball and watch what those guys are doing. Like you said, they're not pitching three days in a row. They've got a top athletic trainers, doctors, they've got recovery programs, rest. I mean, they've got nutritional, you know, and, and we're asking young kids, like you said, that have that kind of schedule on the pitching aspect. The other thing I think we forget we young kids is they got to get warmed up now. They got to throw in the bullpen. We forget those pitches, right? And then yep. they're going to go in the game. They're going to yep. do the same thing the next day, even if it's an inning. People say, well, he's only going to pitch an inning. It's not about innings. It's about pitches. And also there's warm-ups prior to that. And most pitchers in little leagues aren't just pitchers. Right. They're, they're catchers, they're center fielders, they're first baseman, they're third baseman. So, yeah, he's not pitching a lot, but he's still making 20 throws across the field from third base to first base, you know, or he's making throws from right field to catcher. He's a catcher and he's throwing, you know, back to the pitcher every, every pitch, plus he's throwing around to second base, first base for pickoffs or whatever. So you got to think about that too. So there's in little league, most kids aren't specific to a position. They play many positions, which is good, but don't expect them to be a catcher today and pitch seven innings tomorrow. And what's you know, if you pitch today, go to first base where you don't have to make so many throws. Good you know? point. 
or be a DH. Everybody's got a DH now. You know, yeah. do that. Yeah, and what's scary in my mind is you're thinking, like you said, it's an unnatural motion. You got the elbow, all the stuff in the elbow, the shoulder, you know, um, and now they're throwing, now they're adding weighted balls at you real young ages. We don't know what's going on in the elbow and the shoulder. Yeah. And you know, it just, I guess it all gets down to being kid, let kids be in kids. I'm a little bit, I'm a lot older than you, but I'm, when we were kids, we never did a lot of organized sports. It was just like, we're going to meet at this lot at two o'clock and we're going to play baseball. We had no umpires. We had no parents. And we played for three hours at a time, you know, but now everything has to be so organized. You know, you got to play in this travel program. I worked with a guy. Um, he was the athletic director at a very small school here in Elgin, Westminster Christian. Mm -hmm. And his son became a pretty good pitcher. He pitched at TCU for a while and uh, he never let his kid play travel ball. Now here's a kid that went to a high school. Well, it was, K through 12 that only had 400 kids in the entire school. Yet he gets a division one scholarship by just playing high school baseball. Didn't play travel, didn't do all this stuff. He got noticed. So if you're good enough, they're going to find you. Good point. You, know, you know, you don't need to be playing all these travel programs and do all these kind of things to get noticed. If you're out there, they're going to find you, you know, even if you have to go through a, to an open tryout like Sandberg did go to an open tryout and get called back, called back a few times, get drafted way down in the major league draft. And look where he's at now. He's in Cooperstown. You know what? Great point. Cause we got about five minutes left. I want to, I didn't want to, you know, forget this part. Cause you work with some great people with the Chicago Cubs. Um, Sandberg, talk about that. He went to a tryout and that's how he got look, found out. Yeah. Yeah. He was, um, he was going to university of Oregon. no, it was yeah university of it was no university of washington at a, for a full time scholarship played collegiate football a, a legitimate uh, freshman starting quarterback his dad was a baseball fan phillies came to town we're going to have a tryout so he played a little bit of baseball not much in high school went to the tryout at they asked him to come back Went to the regional tryout. They asked him to come back. He ended up getting drafted way down, like maybe 80th round or something of the of the draft. I'm not really sure exactly where. But look where he is. And then he ends up playing for the Phillies. And people don't remember this, but he started out with the Cubs as a third baseman. Hmm. And he was one bat away from being sent to AAA because he got off to like an 0-29 start in 1982 when the Cubs got him at third base. And I talked to Bob Iback about this. They had a press release. They were going to send him down and bring up another third baseman. Well, the guy they threw was going to bring up got hurt. Wow. So they said, well, let's keep Sandberg around until this guy gets better. Well, Sandberg got hot and the rest is history. The rest, wow. You know, and it's interesting when you, when you talk about something like that, that's fake. You just never know, right? Anything can change anytime. Now you work with, you know, with some unbelievable, obviously a lot of, great players but you know when i mentioned sue you mentioned Suter, dawson buckner sandberg some of these great players and there's a lot more obviously i missed some what made them so special why, why were these guys that good what was because you hung around with them you saw them on the field off the field everything they were great all-around athletes probably the greatest all-around athlete i've ever been around was rick Russell. rick Russell. rick Russell. you, you would have never guessed rick Russell. no he could he was a great golfer 
He was a great basketball player. If you watch him when he fielded his position, he was like a cat getting off the mound. I remember. And he was a great pitcher. I just read an article about some of his statistics that they're trying to get him into the Hall of Fame because he is better. His statistics were so much better than current some current Hall of Famers. But when you look at him on bad never, teams. But when you look at him, you would never think great athlete. No, he was a great athlete. I mean, you compare him to Sandberg, it's like right. night and day. But <laughs> Rick was a great athlete. Sandberg wow. was a great athlete. All these guys were great athletes, you know? Mm. And what people don't realize, if you're on a major league roster and you're the 25th man on a major league roster that might play every other week or maybe get a bat maybe once or twice a week, you are an All-American or a superstar someplace, you know, sometime in your career. That's how good these guys are. You know, one time for I don't know why, they asked me to take batting practice before it was like 12 o'clock, you know. Nobody was there. No so, fans. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was just like there was two guys taking batting practice and Billy Connors was the pitching coach at the time. And he says, well, get in there and see if you can hit. Well, he threw me a curveball. I mean, it was just like, and Billy was like in his late 40s at the time. And he threw me a curveball. It just, I, I was just in shock at it, but then he kind of just laid a couple up there and I did hit a couple, but you know, that's how good these people are. There are such great athletes and people don't realize it, you know, and they can sit in the stand, which they pay for. They can boo, they can do whatever they want, but they don't realize what great athletes these guys are. And I've seen the best, you know, I mean, I worked two major league all-star games in 82 or 81, my all-star game had 17 Hall of Famers in it. Wow. You know, these these are the elite, elite athletes. But people don't understand that, you know. And that's why, I guess because I was so close, I have a different perspective of it. And when I hear somebody boo, no matter what sport it is, the athlete, most of the people that boo wouldn't know which end of a bat to hold. Right. And you know what? I was thinking about that. If even if you're in the third row behind home plate, you don't know and don't really understand what it's like to stand and home plate. Big difference when that ball, especially nowadays, 98 miles an hour, even three rows back that close. It's not even close to what you think it is. Your reaction time to react if it's coming at your head is one hundredth of a second, you know? And the vision you need, right? Yeah, that's that's what great athletes they are, you know. But, you know, that, you know, I was fortunate enough to work with a lot of guys that made the major leagues. I mean, I said before, the Cardinals at the time had the greatest minor league system. I mean, I had guys in the in the minor leagues like Gary Templeton, Mike Proley, Kenny Reitz, Mick Kelleher, Eric Rasmussen, Al Raboski, Bob Forsh. uh, gosh, Larry Herndon, Jerry Mumphrey. Um, and it just goes on and on and on, all these guys. And it's just, that's how great this farm system was. And all these guys made it to the big leagues and lasted a long time, you know? Tony, you're... you're uh, Keith, when Hernandez. You're about, Keith Hernandez. Yeah, Mark another Hill. one. You another know? one. And w- when you're talking about great athletes, okay, the Hall of Famers, they're going to fail also but they're not going to fail as much so they're dealing with failure in one way but then you've got other players that 
great players, but average for Major League Baseball, they're going to fail. How do most of these players deal with the failure? Because I'm sure you, I'm sure they came to you at times, even when they were failing, right? Because you had an injury, but yet they talked to you about other things. How did they deal with the failure aspect? You know what? They just, you know, the greatest, the greatest person I think who dealt with failure was Bruce Souter. Hmm. I mean, here's a guy that would, or, or Lee Smith, you take these great relievers, you know, it was do or die situation when they come in. Sometimes they did good. Sometimes they didn't. Right. 15 minutes after the game was over, it was gone. It was completely out of their, their minds. What wow. had happened. They don't draw, they don't dwell on it. You know, it's, you just got to have that mental capability to do that. You know, if a guy was in a hitting slump, they go out and work at it and they could figure out what was going on. But if you look at it, the greatest hitter of all times failed 60% of the time he was up there. And that's Ted Williams. Mm-hmm. He's the only player to ever bet 400. And he still failed 60% of the time. If you think about that, you know, so you, you better figure out how to forget it because if you don't, you're not going to last long in a game. Right. Right. If you stay with it, that's only going to make things worse. You do things, try to correct your problem. It might not work the first time, but the second time it's going to work, you know? Yeah. That's great stuff. Tony, yeah. great stuff. Listen, I want to finish it off. Talk, tell the folks about uh, P-Bats. I know you're involved big time. You were the founder of P-Bats. Yeah. Um, and what you're doing now, uh, we'll finish it off with that. Yeah. P-Bats was something that's very dear to my heart. Um, what it was back when I first started in baseball, you couldn't, if you saw a, a, a person in management, saw you talking to another athletic trainer, you would get fired because wow. they were thinking about, well, you're telling them about Pete Caliendo got an injury, you know, and now we can't trade Pete Caliendo to the Mets or whatever. So uh, what we did was we as professionals wanted to get better in our profession. And the only way we could get better is by more learning. Now we missed a lot of stuff because of baseball. We couldn't do what other athletic trainers did. So we got together at the baseball winter meetings, kind of like on a spy mission. We kind of gathered in somebody's room at the Opryland hotel in 1983 um, to form this educational society. So when, when, when they found out about it, we got letters from the commissioner's office, both league presidents, our owners, and our general manager saying, if you do this, you will all be fired. And we basically said, you can fire us, but you're only hurting yourself because we're trying to get better as professionals, which is going to help you as an organization and Major League Baseball. Now you go back 20 years later. And Bud Selig has to testify before Congress on PEDs. What's he do? He calls PBATs and says, help me. I need help with this. So we've become much better, not only in baseball, but now within our colleagues. Now PBATs is the most responded, most respected organizations in the National Athletic Trainer Society. So it's something that we started and 30, was it 38 years later? it's still going strong. You know, it's stronger now than ever. And what they, what PBETS did to us, for us, the founding members, is they gave all of us a ring and which is really a beautiful ring. And it's their way of saying thank you to us as founders, but also to anybody that has a certain criteria to, to, to get it. You have to have so many years in the big leagues and all this kind of stuff, even to even get this ring. But a lot of my friends who have World Series rings, 
<clears throat> they would rather wear their P-Bets ring than the World Series ring because that means more to them because there's a finite number of people that got them. Right now, there's only 35 people that got P-Bets rings, you know? And how many people got World Series rings? Right, right. Ted groundskeeper got a World Series ring, you know? And this you recommend all, all, anybody get, in, get into the industry to join the association? Pardon me? Anybody is getting into athletic trainer. If you're going to become an athletic trainer, this is a great association to belong to. Yeah, it is. It's one of the best. I mean, it's one of the most respective organizations in National Athletic Trainer Society. But, you know, it's, it's really a great thing. And we get together every year at the National Trainers Meeting. And it's like five years, like we got out of baseball. I've been out of baseball since 1980, out of Major League since 1986. But all these guys were just like, we left yesterday. We're so close. And I come to find out at one meeting, there were six, there, in Texas League at the time in 1975, there were six teams. Five of us made the big leagues within two years. Wow. And we were all in Texas League together. And we didn't know it until we start talking about this at a PBATS meeting. So the camaraderie is there. So yep. that is that is really that's what's really important. I mean, PBATS is really, really, a, it's like watching your child grow, you know, from being to where we were getting fired to now, they're one of the most respected, you know, organizations, you know, but, it, but the profession has been very good to me, you know, like I'm in three hall of fames and I've got, you know, countless, you know, two all-star games and funny thing that I just found out about a week ago, at my college, Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas, just had uh, the 100th anniversary of baseball at the college, okay? They put a plaque on the field. There are two people that made the big leagues in, in Benedictine College. Mm. A guy by the name of Bob Veal, who pitched for the Pirates back in the mid to late 60s, and me. Interesting. Yeah, we're the only two people that in a hundred years of baseball at Benedictine College, it was St. Benedict's, they got a plaque there with my name on it that I've won the two guys that made the big leagues, you know. That's great. You know, it's it's those kind of things now, now that I'm at the end of my career, they yeah, had those kind of things were fun, you know. Absolutely. They mean a lot. I mean, it's a you know, you've done some great stuff in the game and, and should be recognized for it. Tony, it's been yeah. great. Uh listen, uh Happy 50th anniversary, your uh, special, uh, something special you're doing, 50th? Yeah, we're headed to Alaska a week from today. All and, right. um, you know, it's been, a, it's been a long crew. I mean, you know, I couldn't have done this without my wife. I mean, you know, she, she, she's been the rock. I mean, all these different moves when we're going to Little Rock and she packs up, you know, stuff and goes to an apartment for six months in Little Rock and then... I asked her to move to Chicago where we have no family, no nothing, you know, Dream wow. city and moved to Schaumburg and, you know, been there ever since, you know, 48 years later, we're still here, you know, so that's right. Still going. Yeah, All right, yeah. man. This has been awesome. Fantastic stuff. We wish you the best. Uh, have a great 50th and uh, hopefully I'll see you before I'm moving. Oh yeah. We'll get together soon. And thanks right. for your help with your, with all your advice too. No, hey, anytime you know that, um, and uh, you know we've known each other for a while now, so anytime I can help, I, I love to do it. Thanks for being on the show. Hey, folks, uh, Tony Garofalo, fantastic job. The show, the audio will be up tomorrow on 
uh, Baseball Outside the Box, also ESPN Honolulu. Tony, again, special thanks, and uh, special thanks to our producer, Brian Crack, uh, Lineup Media Group. Special thanks to everybody in the U.S. and around the world. Uh, don't forget, stay safe, be healthy, God bless you, and we'll see you on the next show. This has been Baseball Outside the Box with Peter Caliendo. Listen online at BaseballOutsideTheBox.com and subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and all major podcast outlets. Join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Get all of our podcasts now at lineupmedia.fm.